0: This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, from the first chapter beginning at the first verse. This is found on page 807 of the Church Bibles. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Herzen. And Herzen, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jequahim, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechoah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations.
1: Well, well done for reading that, James. Top work. Um, I feel like we should give him a round of applause, so. <laughs> I've got no idea whether the names are pronounced correctly. don't think anyone really knows, but we're just glad that you're able to pronounce anything. Um, we begin this morning Um, Sorry, let me adjust this slightly. We begin this morning a new series in our Christmas series in Matthew's Gospel. And between now and New Year's Day, we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus Christ from chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew. Now, there's a simple outline available to you just on the back of the service sheet. It just shows you roughly how the passage um, divides up. But I guess you're struck, as I am, by the strangeness of... A reading of a list of names um, like that. Uh, we're going to uh, look at this together. We're going to turn to one or two other places in the Bible as well, just to see, look up a couple of who these people are. Uh, so I'd encourage you to have a Bible open uh, in front of you. Uh, but let's pray uh, as we begin. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Lord, we believe these words are true. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by you, including this uh, Matthew chapter one. And so we pray that this morning you would teach us, you would reprove us, you would correct us, and train us in righteousness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, paint a slightly different portrait of Jesus Christ. They're all speaking of the same historical person of Jesus, but they're painting his portrait from different angles and perspectives and with the artist's particular style. And it's Matthew's gospel, more than the other gospels, that is the gospel of Jesus the King, He's painting Jesus as the King. Matthew's readers were mostly from a Jewish background, as Matthew was himself. And he knows that the Jewish people have been waiting for their Messiah or their Christ, the King. That is, the Anointed One whom God had promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Their hopes have been pinned for centuries on this figure's appearance A king who would come to God's people, who would rescue them from their enemies and who would set up a glorious, everlasting kingdom on earth. The people of God are waiting for their king. And it's into that situation, with that sense of longing for a king, that Matthew writes verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. King introduced. Matthew says right up front that his gospel is a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A couple of things to say here. Don't be put off by the word genealogy. Um, It's simply the word genesis. Um, In Greek, it means origin or beginnings. So just as the book of Genesis was the origin of the world... Well, here we have the book of the origin of Jesus, his history, the account of his life. Second thing to notice is that he calls him Jesus Christ, and that's the Messiah word. So, Messiah is Hebrew, uh, Christ is the Greek translation of that. And you notice that he does that in verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then all the way uh, down at the end in verse 16. Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So here we have the book of the account of the promised king, of the Christ, Jesus Christ. And it's the theme of promised, the promised king, I think, uh, that Matthew wants to draw our attention to in this opening verse of introduction. And the reason to think that is because he picks out these two people, David and Abraham. He wants to show us that Jesus is descended from these two men. Why? Well, in one sense it's like an American might speak of Washington and Lincoln today. Two great figures in a nation's history. Abraham and David were such men. They were the fact that Jesus was descended from both of these means that he has a great heritage behind him, and that really matters in a culture uh, like this one that places a great emphasis on ancestry, as many cultures do today, although ours doesn't really. Who you come from is very much a part of who you are and also who you will be. So it is that, but it's much more than that. To understand why these two men are important, we need to go back into the Old Testament And there we find that these two figures are those to whom God made special promises. God made covenants with Abraham and David. And so this morning we're just going to take a a very brief trip into their histories. Um, First of all to Abraham. Um, So if you take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, you can find that uh, on page 8 of the Church Bibles. We won't do this for every person in the genealogy, by the way. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Now here we're in Israel's prehistory, it's before the nation existed. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And just skim down to verse 7, there's a little addition in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring... I will give this land. So, do you see a promise to Abraham of a great nation through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed? And then the promise of an offspring who will inherit the land. So, God promises to Abraham, he promises him a descendant, a son who will come from his line who will inherit all the promises that God has made to him, who will possess a a great nation and bless all the nations of the earth. Now, from there, the story continues through the centuries. And many centuries later, from Abraham's line, we find a king appears on the screen, on the scene. Uh, A king who establishes the kingdom in the land, and his name is David. David. And when you get to David's story, David looks a lot like the offspring that God promised to Abraham. He's defeated Israel's enemies, he's secured the borders of the land, and he's established his throne in the capital, in Jerusalem. But in the story, as soon as that happens, we discover that David is not the one promised. He's not a a perfect king, and not by any means, And he's a mere man. He's a man who will grow old and eventually die. And so it is, just at the moment of David's crowning in Jerusalem, God makes another promise, and it's another promise about offspring. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verse 12, that's page 259, so please do flick forwards. This is the last uh, reference we'll turn to, page 259, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning at verse 12. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You notice the language of offspring again, it's not by accident. This is a continuation of the promise to Abraham, but it, now it's sharpened. This son of Abraham, the offspring who will bless all the nations, will also be a son of David, a descendant from his line, who will become king over God's people. And it can't be Solomon, David's natural son, because, well, look at the scope of his kingship and the scope of his kingdom. Verse thirteen, he will be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. His kingdom will be will last forever. So these two promises, they're the foundations for the Messiah. And Matthew brings these covenant promises to the minds of his readers who are already longing for them to be fulfilled. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 1, it's page 807. So with, all, with those, those promises in mind, the so one to Abraham, the one to David, well, verse 1 suddenly carries a lot more weight as a claim about Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy, the history of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's going to prove to his readers in his gospel account, not just chapter one, but the whole of his gospel, that Jesus is indeed the promised king, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Of course, to do that, you first of all have to prove that he has the ancestry So here we go uh, into the genealogy. There's 46 names, I think. I tried to count them. I got a bit lost in the middle. You can do that later on if you'd like. 46 names, 2,000 years of history. And as we track through the sections, it's it's divided up into sections, uh, 14 14 names in in each. Uh, As you you divide through the sections, we'll just pick out some of the details. We won't go to every name. You'll be glad to hear. Um, Just some of the people... And we'll try and draw some implications um, from each section. So first of all, then, we're in um, verses 2 to 6. This is the pre-kingship ancestry from Abraham uh, to David. Verse 2 to the first part of verse 6, king promised. Now, many of you will be familiar with the TV show, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? If you're not, what happens is uh, in the show is you follow around a celebrity... Um, it used to be major celebrities, but they've kind of run out of those, it's now minor celebrities. And they go back through their census records to trace their family history. And Sometimes the results are really amazing. Um, famously, uh, we found out that Danny Dyer from EastEnders uh, is descended from Edward III, which is pretty, pretty great. Uh, but sometimes the results are really bad. Their ancestors are some kind of slave trader or traitor or lawyer, you know, people you'd be really deeply ashamed of. Um, That's just a little joke for the lawyers in the room. Um, with, With the ancestry of the Messiah, though, well, you'd expect to find an impeccable lineage, wouldn't you? A line of great men and women. Indeed, if you were making it up, well, there'd be people you'd definitely include and people you'd definitely leave out people whose reputation would spoil the image that you were trying to create. Now, Matthew is selective in who he includes. Um, There are people he leaves out. He does that to make it into sets of 14, I guess to make it memorable um, for us. But that's actually not surprising that he would do that. That's just the way that these uh, genealogies worked in ancient writings. You always uh, skipped generations of people just to make it uh, simple. That's not surprising, what's surprising is who Matthew leaves in. And there are some big shots in these first few verses. So from verse two, it begins just like you'd expect. You start with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then you get Judah, and that's important because God had said that the king should come from Judah's tribe. But then shock number one, there's an incestuous relationship. See, Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and produced these twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And it's also a shock in this traditional culture. These boys were born out of wedlock. It's all a bit messy, but Matthew unapologetically leaves it there. There are other shocks too. The fact that Matthew specifically includes women in his genealogy, five in total, that's really unusual. And in fact, if you look at it, it's actually unnecessary for proving Jesus's ancestral line. But he does, he includes them. What's more unusual is that some of these women are Gentiles and not Jews. Ruth, for example, she's a Moabite. What's even more shocking is that one of these women, at least, has a very dubious reputation. Just look at verse 5. Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite and a prostitute. She was the first person the spies met in the land when they entered the promised land. It turns out that she is David's great-grandmother. The Daily Mail would have had a field day with that bit of info. Why is, why is Matthew doing this? He's obviously making a point, isn't he? He's not merely proving that Jesus is descended from Abraham, and nor is he just proving that Abraham and uh, the connection between Abraham and King David. There are two implications, I think, from this. The first one is this: he's just hinting to us that the kingdom of God is broader and more inclusive than you think. It's a kingdom where women are as important as men. That's a point he's making here. And he's showing us that there is a place for Gentiles in the kingdom. That that's been true from the beginning. And in fact, in the gospel, that's a point that Matthew is very keen on making. And we know this if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Uh, Johnny preached at our open weekend, and he preached from the very last words of Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 28. Do you remember the words that closed uh, this account? There we saw the crucified and resurrected Jesus. He comes to his disciples on the mountainside, and he says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a universal kingship claim. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, it's not just ethnic Israel, but all nations. Baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What begins in chapter 1 is just a hint becomes explicit in chapter 28. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the one in whom the nations will be blessed. Gentiles, people from all nations, can be included equally in his kingdom. Ethnicity is not a barrier. And more, that we are called as Christian disciples to go to the nations to make disciples of Jesus, to call them, to bow the knee to him as their king. That's the first implication. Because the ancestors of this king are broader than you think, so too the subjects of this king will be the same. Now, The second implication is this, and this is going to carry us into the next section, is that sinners can be included as well. So chapter 1, verse 6, second part of verse 6 to verse 11, king present. So This second section, the second set of 14, we're in the age of the kings. But look at how it begins in the second part of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice how Matthew doesn't name her. We know her name. Her name's Bathsheba. So why does he call her Uriah's wife? In fact, why does he mention her at all? He didn't need to. He could have just gone straight from David to Solomon. If you were Matthew, wouldn't you want to leave that bit out? Why remind people of this? Well, it's to highlight sin. Not Bathsheba's sin, David's sin. D. Solomon was the product of great wickedness, a betrayal of a friend, an adulterous affair, followed by murder and cover-up. David's sins put before our eyes right here. Why? What's Matthew teaching us? The point is this, that sinners even terrible sinners, can be included in God's people. And that means that that must be due only to God's sheer grace and mercy. It's not because David is righteous that God uses him or does any good through him. It's despite his unrighteousness that he has such a privileged place in God's kingdom. And just so with us too, we're not included in the kingdom of Jesus because of our righteousness. God does not use us in his purposes because we're good people. He's just despite our lack of goodness, only because of his grace and his mercy. He does change us just as he did David, but that too is only by his grace. Now, once we see the presence of sin and sinners in this genealogy, well, we can push slightly further into another implication that God's will and purposes are not thwarted by sinners or by sin. Now, this becomes really obvious when you read down the list of Kings in verse 7 to 11. Now, there are one or two uh, decent kings in there, guys like Hezekiah and Josiah. But many or most of these are wicked men. Time after time, they turn their backs on the Lord to worship idols. They do great evils in the land. Again and again, they try to draw other people away from worshipping God. Eventually, the patience God shows them uh, comes to an end. Jeconiah the last king named in the genealogy, in verse 11. His sin is so great that in Jeremiah 23, his line is cursed. And we're told that no natural biological descendant of Jeconiah's will inherit his throne. We read Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 30. God says to him, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. It's a terrible curse, and the result of this curse is what we see at the end of verse 11, the deportation to Babylon. The exile. It's the line of kings is snipped at that point. As we get into the next section, into 12 to 15, we're in the period which leads up to the first century where Matthew writes, and here there is no king. It is king absent, verse 12 to 15. So we're here, the period of exile to Christ. Christ. We've got the line of those who would be king, but cannot be. And the point here is that the kingly line really disappears into obscurity. There's only one name of note in that final paragraph, Zerubbabel. Um, He brought the exiles back to Judah. But other than that, we know nothing about these men. They're nobodies. There's no longer a king in Israel. He's absent. And in fact, the kingdom of Israel is absent too. People have been scattered, the land's been conquered and is ruled by others, first the Greeks, now the Romans. They install their client kings, men like Herod, who aren't properly Jews, and out of this line. And it seems that the promises of God have failed. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. God's been silent. It's pretty miserable and hopeless for God's people. Matthew's readers know this, of course. This is their world. This is the world that they live in. Is there any hope of this Messiah king ever coming to take his place on the throne? It seems that there there are now two conflicting words from God. There's, There's the son of David to fulfill God's promise. But there's also the curse on Jeconiah and the exile means that there can't be a king To sit on God's throne. But is that what happens? No. There can't be a natural born son because of God's curse on Jeconiah. But perhaps there's another way. Perhaps there's a little hope left because maybe someone can become a son by another means. What about by adoption? Now, it's likely that Shealtiel, um, in verse 12, here he's called Jeconiah's son. It's likely that he is not a natural son, but a son by adoption. Um, It's a little bit complicated, but if you read 1 1 Chronicles 3 and Luke 4, it seems to imply that. But he's not the only one, is he? And this brings us into land in verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, Matthew finally draws our attention to the man at the end of the line of absent kings. An obscure carpenter from a tiny town of Nazareth, a young man called Joseph. Joseph who does not yet have natural children, but who is married to a woman called Mary. And just look at how the wording shifts in verse 16. So we've had this sort of regular drumbeat, haven't we, of The father of, the father of, the father of. But that halts abruptly. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. He's very careful with his wording, isn't he? Jesus is not Joseph's natural son. He is his adopted son through his marriage to Mary. Actually, if you just look over the column onto um, verse 25, when Joseph names him Jesus, notice he names him Jesus, verse 25, that is in effect a formal adoption procedure. Now famously, of course, um, and if you come back to the carol services uh, this evening, famously we'll find out exactly why Jesus is not Joseph's natural son, It's because he's the Son of God, because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit as a baby boy, not by natural means. Now let's zoom back out. Let's just see Matthew's big point here. His big point is this that Jesus Christ is of the right line to be the promised king. He has the credentials. Now these are just the first brushstrokes of the portrait of Jesus that we'll be gazing at this Christmas time. Well, if, you, if you asked people, um, your friends or your colleagues, your neighbours, you know, if you asked people who they thought Jesus was, I guess they might say lots of different things. Some, some of them would just deny his existence entirely. I'm sure that's true. Uh, but most, I think, would at least recognise that he existed historically. Of those, uh, some might say it's just the baby that you have at Christmas. Some might say a good man or a good teacher. Some would say a healer or a social reformer. All those things are true. But here's Matthew's claim. That Jesus Christ is king. He is authentically Israel's king. But by the end of... The gospel, the claim is made that he's everybody's king. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations in my name and teach them to obey me. Jesus Christ comes into a world that's crying out for a king a king that will defeat our enemies, not our political enemies, but our enemies of sin and death. He comes as a king to rescue us from those things. He comes as a king who will establish his eternal kingdom, a kingdom which will include people from all the nations of the earth. Through his death on the cross to pay for our sins... His kingdom can even include sinners like you and like me. Matthew's going to show us that this king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Here he is, he says. He is authentically the promised Messiah of God's people, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17 concludes our passage. It's really just a simple reminder to us. These fourteens that uh, Matthew puts together for us. It's just a reminder. It reminds us that God's plan to bring this about is perfectly formed. He brings about his plan to perfection. He does it despite our sin. He does it through his sovereignty, through his unseen providences. But above all, he does it through keeping faithful to his promises. going to spend a few weeks thinking about this King Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. But we begin with confidence that he is the genuine article, that this is the book of the genealogy, the history, the origin of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promised Messiah King has come. That's the claim. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have looked this morning at, to what our uh, eyes and ears is a strange part of your words, we thank you that it has purpose, that it is equally a part of your word as any other part, and we thank you that it points us to your faithfulness in keeping your promises throughout the generations. You said we would, you would bring your King to save us, and that's what you have done through Jesus Christ. We praise you for all that we have seen. In Jesus' name, amen.